This is the center for religion in the city. The next stop is Contagion, Religion, and Cities. Welcome to the second episode of the Contagion, Religion, and Cities podcast. I am Amanda Ferriasse, co-host and co-director of Contagion, Religion, and Cities, a project at the Center for the Study of Religion in the City at Morgan State University's Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies. The podcast aim is to facilitate interdisciplinary dialogue on the convergence of religion, health, disease, and urbanism. Today, we have Alex Nading on the show to discuss his groundbreaking 2014 monograph, Mosquito Trails, Ecology, Health, and the Politics of Entanglement. We also have a number of scholars joining today's conversation, including Sheriff Gantarine, co-host and co-director of Contagion Religion and Cities, Harold Morales, the director of the Center for the Study of Religion and the City, Sierra Lynn Lawson, a member of the podcast team. Um, we also have Faye Wing, Joanna Crosby, Kareem Amin, Ben Sachs, Christina Rossetti, Isaiah Ellis, Nayla Price, Samia Krichner, and Kelly Mariquin joining us today as well. So it's an exciting show. Um, I will let Sierra get us started. Hey, yeah, thanks for that. Um, so I suggested this book obviously last time we met for the podcast um, and I was first introduced to this ethnography maybe five years ago in a health and healing seminar um, with the biocultural anthropologist Kathy Oates at the University of Alabama and around that time I was reading a lot of Mary Douglas, Donna Haraway, and Walter Mignolo and thinking with concepts of contamination the role of geopolitics and the circulation of blame in public health crises and I actually remember this being the first ethnography I ever read from front to back as an anthropology undergrad and being the first um, book I ever annotated in in undergrad. Uh, so it was really kind of sort of time travely to look at my annotations from almost half a decade ago and think through how that um, how this work was really foundational for my thinking about how to conduct research and report your findings in a way that doesn't divorce those findings from the context you're extracting them from. So. Uh, looking at the ecology of dengue endemic communities in Ciudad Sandino, Nicaragua, Alex's work in mosquito trails challenges tropes that dominate biocultural models while offering a critical perspective on the cyclical relationship between glo global citizenship and health disparities. During his fieldwork in the late 2000s, he studied dengue fever or breakbone fever as a multi-factored problem contingent on the management of urban space. This ethnography recalls the influence of the Sandinista-led revolution that successfully toppled, toppled the de facto Somoza dictatorship, an event that was directly followed by the intervention of the United States via the CIA-backed Contra War. In, that final, in the final decades of the 20th century, these events, in addition to the later Ortega administration, as well as natural disasters in the forms of floods and earthquakes, resulted in a fractured neoliberal political system that made Ciudad Sandino a city of emergencies, as Alex refers to it. Um, in 1984, it was estimated that roughly half of the adult population of Nicaragua belonged to grassroots movements that emerged during the revolutionary government's short success uh, just before the intensification of U.S. presence in the country. And thriving on this newly seated political power, these groups demanded increased access to the flow of knowledge between government groups and among citizens. So Alex's work specifically follows one such group, um, the Brigadistas, and this group is mostly comprised of women from the Sandinista movement. The Brigadistas were driven to educate their communities about um, mosquito-human relations as, a, as, um, as themselves working as household health promoters. Um, and this drive to educate, Alex refers to as their ecological aesthetic. 
Specifically, he analyzes the methods of the brigadistas who were often single mothers serving as the head of their households um, and how they were working in Las Calles y La Casa to shift the focus on dengue fever from individual responsibility to the household level and the community level as a broader focal point. In the discourse on dengue sustained by the brigadistas, education about the ecology of dengue as a virus and the life cycle of mosquitoes as a vector became an essential resource for aiding communities in Ciudad Sandino. Unlike government organizations like the Ministry of Health or MINSA that rely on problem-posing philosophy to displace blame from infrastructure and systematic disenfranchisement, the brigadistas focus on control of dengue and attendant factors rather than total eradication. So because chachara or um, scrap, um, the chachara or scrap market figures so, so dominantly as a key dynamic of Ciudad Sandino's ecology, the work of the brigadistas addressed the symbiotic relationship between economic opportunity and the density of waste in their communities. So they were working in a way to address this that um, groups like Minsa failed to sort of engage with at that local level. So Working in their own communities, the brigadistas in this ethnography had an intimate familiarity with the ecosystem of trash management in Ciudad Sandino and specifically the tensions between um, city garbage collectors and chorqueros or local informal sanitation workers, sort of. Um, and using that knowledge um, of the implicit moral contract between citizens and proprietary rights to Chatara. Uh, these women were able to successfully share vital information about methods for controlling dengue um, through their work on the ground. So thus, Alex's work provides a really fruitful site for investigating the entanglement of chachara, poverty, pathogens, the residential landscape of Ciudad Sandino, and the distribution of local knowledge through this trope of trails that um, moves throughout the book, as the title suggests. Using the language of entanglement, uh, moving parts that might at first seem disparate are located within a global context that centers bodies, infrastructure, and knowledge production. Um, so I just feel really lucky to get to talk about this text with all of you, and I'm very grateful that Alex is taking the time to speak with us. Uh, I'm specifically, I, Cher is going to ask you the first question, but I'm, I'm really interested in how this text challenged assumptions we might have um, about public health and community management of urban space, and obviously uh, very interested in how reading this um, helps us think about COVID-19 and the role of communities in public health work. So, hand it back off. Thank you, Sierra, for that presentation. And thanks so much for uh, suggesting we invite Alex and read Mosquito Trails, because I think it so neatly transitions from our previous uh, uh, study in episode one because what the main insight from the previous work on um, Hawaii was that health is oftentimes relational and with Alex's work the concept of entanglement was something I thought of as neatly building on that insight that uh, the brigadistas you know uh, they're not just preventing you from getting uh, the mosquito to bite you they're actually entangled they're so they're they're finding there there is a pleasure they have you use the word pleasure also alex often in your book about uh, a pleasure of entering into a life world that connects the mosquitoes with the people so actually my question is very similar sierra's first question uh, about you know uh, critiquing or insights into how we think about public health so alex the main insight i gained was that it's not so simple as preventing you to get disease but instead when these seeming these folks who are seemingly there to prevent you from getting the the dengue fever are actually in getting into an entanglement with the mosquito as well 
uh, I think about the concept of technology is really useful too. In one of your end notes, I think in the introduction, you talk about how technologies likewise, uh, you know, get entangled uh, with the people who use those technologies. So technologies like dengue fever are gendered. Uh, and in this con context, the, the feminine gender, the role of women as brigadista. So could you uh, answer Sierra's question about, the, about your contribution to how we think about public health and global health by maybe uh, talking about technology uh, kind of framing it around technology. What kind of technologies do the brigadistas use uh, in their work uh, in preventing the uh, in in their work as contact traces? That'd be great. Great. Uh, thanks uh, to Amanda and Sierra and, uh, and Cher for all of that. And um, I'm, I'm again just really grateful uh, for the chance to talk about this book. Um, um, it, it seems like it's been a while since I, uh, since I wrote it, although I've remained in contact with um, uh, a fair number of the folks who, are, who, who I talk about in the book. Um, so to share a question about uh, technology and the role that that plays, that was a, a, a I, I, in some ways I feel like maybe the, the missing chapter of this book, um, really, I mean, I talk about it, but it was a really important tool that the Brigadistas had when I was working with them was um, a, a, a chemical larvicide, uh, organophosphate larvicide, um, that um, is, is the trade name for it is a bait um, in Nicaraguan. The sort of uh, uh, sort of uh, you know Hispanicized term for it is abate, but it's uh, it's an organophosphate. Um, and what it does is it um, it uh, it chokes the uh, mosquito in its larval stage in the water, and so. That tool, um, you know, it's a it's a lethal, actually quite dangerous kind of chemical um, to which the brigadistas were actually exposed in ways that are probably um, uh, contra to the use protocols that you might see from the EPA or the OSHA, right? Um, not a lot of PPE involved in um, in deploying this tool, um, but this uh, chemical was in some ways less important for its capacity to kill mosquitoes, which it did have, um, and more important as a sort of emblem of um, the Brigadista's kind of um, uh, right and responsibility to cross the threshold of someone's home and look around for mosquitoes uh, breeding sites in that home. So mosquitoes, of course, breed in small, these particular mosquitoes, Aedes aegypti, breed in these small um, containers of water um, in and around uh, domestic urban spaces. Um, and so this, uh, to sort of think about the way that you were talking about technology, um, drawing on a, on a footnote in the book, um, the, the chemical was both a kind of key for crossing that threshold. Um, it had a sort of small value to the householders as this sort of pest management tool. Um, but it also uh, sort of gathered uh, people and mosquitoes and brigadistas and health ministry together in, in, in ways that weren't always completely harmonious, right? Um, there was always a lot of uh, sort of ethical and uh, methodological debate among the brigadistas about um, how to distribute this stuff um, how uh, aggressively um, or conservatively to um, put it around uh, water uh, sources and houses, and of course, whether or not it was the right thing to do to simply give somebody um, a, a bundle or a baggie of this stuff to let them uh, deploy it on their own, right? Um, and so um, 
in a way, you can think of those uh, chemicals as um, one kind of tool for um, seeing the relationship between people and mosquitoes, right? It's this lethal thing, right? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, again, it's a killer chemical, um, but uh, it, is, it is one method, not the only method of kind of um, sparking that kind of relational thought. And, and, and the reason I want to talk about that is because of its lethality, right? Um, it has this, there's another side to that, right? Which is that um, if it's misunderstood, it can be seen um, as um, chemicals have often been seen as kind of magic bullets or um, as sort of shortcuts um, for uh, managing a really complex urban ecosystem. So like um, the brigadistas had to understand that it wasn't just about, oh, we, we tossed this chemical in a, in a water bucket and, and the problem goes away. The chemical was supposed to be an invitation to, for people to think about the life cycle of the mosquito that I talk about in the book, the signs and symptoms of dengue, um, and of course, for the, the brigadistas, especially how dengue might be related to other problems that people might be facing. Um, and so um, that's, that's a really, really interesting lesson of, to how public health technologies work, right? We're all waiting for a COVID-19 vaccine. Um, but um, think about uh, what we know about vaccines in the United States now. Um, and um, anyone who's talking about a vaccine as the final step, the thing that's gonna get us over the hump with this pandemic, might wanna look at how um, technologies and other epidemic con contexts have actually been deployed and how resistance to technology um, and uh, suspicion of technology, no matter how promising it might seem, can undermine those, uh, those very kinds of uh, public health efforts that they're supposed to support. Um, and so if we don't sort of develop through, in my opinion, through community health, if we don't develop an appreciation for, but also humility about what public health technologies can and can't do, um, then we run the risk of overselling their potential, right? Um, and we've seen this happen several time of, times over the last few months, right? Um, whether it's um, through um, the, the sort of um, murky science around malaria drugs and how they might work for COVID-19 um, to um, the um, sort of the promising potential of vaccines of a story in today about the vaccine. Um, we have to think about how that technology is gonna fit into people's uh, sort of social and cultural, linguistic, and uh, perhaps even religious conceptions about what those things mean. Um, so I think we should expect when, and I hope there will be soon, when there is an effective COVID-19 vaccine, we should expect in the United States a fair amount of resistance uh, to, uh, to vaccination. And that resistance can come from a lot of different sources. And so I think it's our responsibility as social scientists, as philosophers, um, and as educators, not just to trumpet the, 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 the magic of a technology or the power of a technology, but to learn how to think about those things comparatively. Um, and the way in which we all, I, I think having an ambivalence about technology is probably the healthiest thing we can do. Um, that doesn't mean we don't embrace it, but we embrace it in a way that, um, um, in, in my opinion, is sort of, is sort of humble and, 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 and doesn't cut off, it doesn't foreclose um, what, in my opinion, should be uh, a broader conversation about what health is and what it might be. Um, and, and the most effective health technologies have tended to be those, right? Um, so I'll stop there. Thanks, Alex. Right. We have Harold to start off. 
Yeah, th thanks for that, Alex. Um, so I was thinking about how you you use this term entanglement um, as a, a metaphor or as a, a kind of a, a theoretical vantage point, and you're drawing on quantum mechanics to understand this. Um, and so I, I keep thinking about um, the role of the metaphors or the lens through which we understand things. Um, so Ben last time talked about the possibility of looking at the or understanding the economy as a religion. And in that context, then the, the quite like the discussion between the economy and people's lives seems to make a little bit more sense if it's seen as something that you sacrifice lives to. Um, so I keep coming back to this, the, the relationship between the metaphors that we use to understand or unpack or um, think through something like a, a pandemic. Um, and so the entanglement metaphor as you're drawing on um, quantum mechanics and other things is really interesting to me, but then you push that in, in other realms as well when you look at the Brigadistas as evangelical, right, or in, involved in um, evangelism. So I wanted to just kind of ask you about how, how it is that you first um, came to entanglement as the, the primary lens, um, and then the, the broader question regarding just the role of metaphor or um, a, a kind of guiding lens to, to understand things through. Sure, thanks. Um, so I came to uh, this concept of entanglement um, through, well, I was trying to come up with not so much, I guess I wasn't thinking of so much of a, a metaphor, but I was trying to think of um, a kind of conceptual language for understanding the ways that, um, in this case, people and mosquitoes and viruses sort of co-construct urban environments, right? Um, so in that sense, entanglement is less metaphorical than it is, um, to me, um, quite material or, or, or material and semiotic, right? Um, in the sense that um, what, we, what we glean, the messages that we get from um, mosquitoes or from viruses uh, through our bodies or in our environment um, cause us to react in certain kinds of ways um, to uh, change or modify. And of course, those uh, um, insects and sort of quasi-living beings, the mosquitoes and the viruses, are um, constructing their own uh, sort of uh, ecological niches, their own life worlds, um, by reacting to the signals that we send, right? Um, um, and, and, and the story of the mosquito especially, and, and well, the, the, the triad, the mosquito, the virus, and the human, is, is, is very much a historical one. It's a historical material one, right? Um, these three things um, haven't always co-evolved, and that evolution isn't natural. Um, it has to do with uh, trade and travel across several continents. You have a mosquito who you can tell from its name um, probably originated in, um, in, in, the, in the Nile Valley of Africa. You have uh, a, a set of viruses that um, very likely um, uh, emerged out of forest zones in Southeast Asia. These things meet through trade, trade routes that then become routes of, of human trafficking um, there, and then uh, make their way to the Americas, probably through that route, through the kind of triangular trade in, in, in human beings and sugar and, uh, and, and textiles uh, through the Atlantic. Um, and, and, and the propensity of the mosquito to want to hang around people and feed on people, this particular one, 
um, sort of grew up around that, right? So in that sense, it's, a, it's very much a material thing, right? Um, but of course, it's also um, uh, uh, metaphorical in the sense that I think it's um, that sense of being caught up in a kind of what Donna Haraway calls a kind of cat cradle relationship, right? Um, isn't always necessarily um, um, a, a neat one or even a happy one, right? Um, and so in the metaphorical sense, I think what it refers to is the, is, is the real difficult work of trying to harmonize um, transnational or global health governance of epidemics and local governance, right? Um, um, or uh, another way that I think it sort of uh, crosses that boundary between the metaphorical and the material is to sort of think about how people on the ground during epidemics have to reconcile these different sort of temporal scales, right? The very intense, urgent temporality of being being sick, right? Which um, I can imagine most of us in this virtual room are having some direct experience with, right? Um, where um, time seems to be compressed. And then the sort of longer trajectories of um, those epidemic curves that we're all learning to think about, right? How do we reconcile those things, right? Um, and then um, I think the other way in which uh, that term seemed to work for me was in um, a lot of uh, uh, work in feminist studies of science and the environment, um, this term entanglement, which is taken up from uh, partly from the uh, sort of philosopher Karen Barad's reading of quantum mechanics, um, is a is sort of a term that's used to capture people's efforts, people like the Brigadistas, their efforts to kind of remain engaged and alive uh, to, to the world around them, despite um, what I talked about a minute ago, the temptations of technology to um, that might want to insulate us, right? Or of course, the very real kind of ways in which media and um, uh, our understandings of uh, urban violence or something might tempt us to close ranks and, and, and close in, right? So um, entanglement is not only a state of being, but I think it's something to which um, uh, many of the brigadistas actually aspired, right? Um, and so um, that to me is, is, is quite a different stance than uh, the sort of, it's a pragmatic stance, but it's not the kind of one that the kind of technocratic public health perspectives might take, right? Um, this willingness to um, to be connected in in all of the messiness of what it means to be connected um, is something that um, should I think be cultivated in public health, and that's sort of where I was trying to get to with uh, with this notion of entanglement. Um, and it's something that you know it's one of those words I will say that um, you know once I started using it I started noticing it, it, it it's it's a very easy crutch of a word. <laughs> <laughs> entanglement, right? Um, it's like, oh, it's entangled, right? Uh, things are all connected. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that great, right? Um, and so I've become more and more attuned to the importance of understanding that that there 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 are two sides to it, right? I mean, it's not just about the magic and the mystery of being connected, but also the ways in which um, connections aren't always voluntary. They're not always thought, um, and they're not always uh, lived as, as as positive right so there are um for people for whom um disentangling themselves from systems of um political or economic oppression or from exposure to viruses or or or, or chemicals um or, or other kinds of things that might harm them is, is a very important political project too um so i 
I, I, I sometimes uh, you know worry that 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 positive side of it can overshadow the fact that um, there are two parts of this, right? Um, I, I don't think that undermines the importance of thinking about entanglements, but I do think that um, if you're thinking about how people are connected, you have to also think about the ways in which they work to, to disconnect too. Um, and so that's something that, um, for example, with the use of ag, you know these sort of toxic agrochemicals to kill mosquitoes, uh, it's definitely on the minds of, of, of brigadiers, right? Um, they they know that exposing their bare skin and their lungs to these chemicals day in and day out uh, probably can cause harm. And so they have to think about what the limitations of their commitment are given uh, something like that. Isaiah wishes to entangle in this conversation. Isaiah, go ahead, man. I was still muted. Um, Thank you, Sharon, and thanks, Alex, for uh, for being here. I wanted to pick up on this theme of entanglement um, and talk a little bit more specifically, or get you to talk a little bit more specifically about urban space uh, in in the context that we're talking about here. Um, particularly, uh, one of the key terms you bring out in your introduction, infrastructure, um, and you make mention a little bit, and I think we're seeing this uh, a little bit. Lots of questions about. Um, how city life can function smoothly or not in the context of, of COVID or um, just in the context of this epidemiological work that you're, uh, that you're tracking. Um, and so I, want, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about the connection between urban space, urban planning, and the kind of, um, I'll call it intimacy, uh, that the incompleteness of the epidemiological infrastructure that you talk about um, creates new kinds of entanglements between uh, citizens. Yeah, um, I, I think that that's probably another of the big influences on the book. So again, I kind of mentioned sort of feminist uh, environmental and science studies, but I mean, urban, urban geography and anthropology that sort of takes the perspective of political ecology is a big, a big sort of set of um, conversations that I wanted to be involved in with this book. And um, an infrastructure is, of course, this, um, it, it, it's, the, it's the agglomeration of sort of connective tissue um, in, in, in cities and in economies, um, but it's always incomplete. Um, you know, the old thing that, you know, you sort of tell students when you teach about it is, is the thing that um, you don't think about until it breaks down, right? Um, or it's the boring stuff. Um, and so what, what makes infrastructure such, uh, so, so glaringly important in the context of a place like greater Managua is um, that it's, uh, it's constantly under construction. I mean, there's, there's maintenance work going on that's constantly being built and it's being kind of built around us all the time, which is happening where I'm sitting right now too. Um, but the, um, the thing about how planners imagine, and I'm not thinking, it's, I don't think it's just planners. I think it's also the, the sort of the politicians and the folks who, who implement those plans imagine what infrastructure is supposed to do. Um, often, um, the, one of the things, because infrastructure is so often literally submerged beneath us or hidden away from us, the, 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 those politics are also hidden away and submerged beneath us. Um, and so um, when it comes to our um, exposure to diseases, 
um, in cities particularly. Um, I think we're we're really being confronted with um, a kind of um, uh, a kind of collapse of what we normally think of. Normally, if you want to study infrastructure critically and think about it, you have to go and excavate it. You have to sort of force it to the surface, right? Um, if, you, if you're going to be the person studying the city, right? You're going to say, I'm going to go behind the scenes and look at how the, the water grid works or how the electrical grid works or how the uh, internet infrastructure works, right? But when you have a disaster or you just have a, you know, a, 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 you know, a, a longer term situation like say global climate change, um, as, as my friend Craig Hetherington pointed out, you know, you don't actually, it doesn't take a critic or a scholar to go and do that, that, that sort of inversion work, right? The infrastructure is being inverted for us, right? We're learning in a way that the designs for the future, which are in some ways what infrastructures always are, right? Someone's someone's past imaginary of what our future was going to be, right? Um, we're learning how those things are, uh, are 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 not quite working for us, right? Um, so there, the the failings that maybe couldn't have been imagined are are being are being laid bare for us. So in our case. Um, in, in the case of dengue, right? Um, I think um, the imag if there was an imaginary of what a city like Ciudad Sandino could have been or should have been, right? Um, there was attention certainly paid to um, uh, division of houses and streets and that sort of thing. And then water infrastructure became this thing that um, was uh, built sort of ad hoc and and partly through social movements and partly through occasional political efforts and partly through transnational uh, sort of uh, supranationally funded projects. And so it, it, you know, water, which is so crucial to how dengue spread, um, became kind of patchy, right? Um, how people accessed it. And that patchiness, um, you know, really the problem with that patchiness, aside from you know, quality and regularity of access to water, which is, you know, a, a human rights question. The real, the real problem with that patchiness, you know, became in the case of dengue, the ways in which uh, mosquitoes are able to exploit it, right? Um, if people can't rely on water um, uh, every day to come out of the tap, they're gonna store water. Mosquitoes are gonna find places to live. You're gonna have dengue outbreaks, right? Um, and all of a sudden um, you have a problem that's much bigger than um, uh, a single sort of designer could get you out of, right? Because people are already living within um, uh, and, and, and across different layers of different sorts of plants uh, for what the city might be. And those plants take the form of kind of modernist kind of grids, but they also, right next to it, take the form of um, emergency or humanitarian interventions that are just designed to keep people alive. Um, or they take the form of kind of communal non-state efforts to access this precious vital resource um, that don't really answer to either of those logics, the logic of, human, of humanitarian aid or, or, or rescue or the logic of kind of long range planning, right? So uh, again, you have these different sorts of visions of present, past and future that are kind of layered on top of one another. Um, and that's what, so it's one of the things that's really interesting about uh, infrastructure to me is are, are those kinds of things. Um, and so then the politics of infrastructure isn't about kind of rationalizing so much or, or unif unifying, um, but um, trying to figure out where, in fact, um, the, um, uh, the, the next step might actually need to take us. I mean, I think a lot of what we're seeing now in, in, in urban development 
um, especially in places outside the, the United States and Europe, although there too, um, are, are real questions about do cities in, in, in the future, as we continue to think about the future, is it, is, it, is it right to expect or is it reasonable to expect that the cities that we imagine, you know, we imagine Managua in 50 years or we imagine Guatemala City in 50 years, do we need to imagine it along the template of um, the, the modernist European or American city? Or are there other ways that we need to, that, that, that health might emerge through those uh, systems of water provision and waste management um, that, um, that don't actually map onto that notion of the sort of centralized and managed grid, right? Um, and I think um, what's exciting about that imagination is not so much that there's a lot of, uh, and there is a lot of space for um, invention and entrepreneurship, but also for uh, community ownership um, and um, different ways to think about um, who might be um, who might be invested in infrastructure, um, not just as a service, but as uh, a, another form of, of, of building connections and building community. And this is something that happens in Ciudad Sandino. I mean, I'm still doing work there, and we're seeing this. You know, the case of waste management. Um, since I started working there. Um, people who were uh, informal waste pickers that form cooperatives um, um, to think about other ways of not only making money off of the waste stream, but also of organizing the management of waste beyond the expectation that it's the civic service that um, is going to be uh, sort of uh, paid into and, and rendered to people who can pay and then denied to people who can't pay, right? Um, to think about both uh, environmental improvement and job creation and a sense of, um, uh, of of belonging in the city at the same time. Um, and that means that, you know, very often people themselves become pieces of infrastructure and they start to imagine themselves as pieces of infrastructure. Right? Um, and so if we want to do good urban planning, I think we have to understand those kinds of connections that people have to each other um, and, and, the, and the ways in which they work to capitalize on those um, as well as what kinds of technologies might be appropriate for this. <clears throat> yeah, I know we have some architects in the chat, or we have some architects joining us who are probably mulling this question as well um, about what the uh, kind of infrastructure of the future will look like as a result of COVID. Um, so I'll leave, I'll leave you guys on deck as you're mulling that. Um, and I would follow up too on um, the notion of emergency, because I think here, if we're thinking about infrastructure, we also have to be thinking about the notion of emergency, which you bring up a lot, uh, which I found very interesting because I think it's not just unique to Sandito, but I find it unique to my own city, my own times right now with COVID. It feels like we're in this constant, it's emergency, 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 right? Um, and you know, it's actually not new in many ways because when I was living down in Florida, we were dealing with hurricanes all the time. And it was so funny, you know, here it is a hurricane centric area and they keep, and every year when the hurricanes would come, it was a grand emergency. And yet, and yet it made it seem like hurricanes were somehow out of the ordinary or somehow unique when in reality, they were just part of the normal punctuations of time in Florida. Um, so one thing I did notice too, though, is this call to emergency. And this is kind of what you do a good job in your book too, when you're talking about Sandito, is it seems like there's something there's this dark underbelly behind the call to emergency that almost allows 
governments and politicians to undermine people's authority and ability to do something about the actual issue at hand. Um, and I definitely, it seems like more and more with COVID-19, this is something that I'm picking up with in my own kind of society. It seems like as we treat it more and more as a crisis, you would expect as if we would invest more and more into sustainable infrastructure projects to redress it on a long term. Yet it seems like we're not. <laughs> there, there's some sort of weird situation. So I wonder if you could talk more about this relationship that you see between emergency and cities, kind of the built, how cities are being built and managed and maintained, specifically kind of in the context of public health and epidemics. Yeah, this is, uh, you're, 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 you're spot on. This is understanding that, that underbelly of emergency is, is, is crucial if we want to understand what's happening um, around us right now. I mean, um, we have, been on a supposedly on a footing of pandemic preparedness in this country um, for 20 years at least, right? Um, at least since uh, SARS, uh, but probably even a little bit before the, the, the first SARS <laughs> back in 2003, uh, if you can remember back that long, um, you know, our, our, our government um, has uh, been uh, declaring itself to be working on preparedness plans, right? Emergency preparedness plans, um, and uh, and yet um, those plans um, appear to have been. Um, and I don't really think. I mean, I, I do think there's a lot of um, you know, there's there's a lot of um, uh, forensic uh, that we can go through on this to sort of um, figure out where the blame for this particular situation lies, but. Um, the um, the fact is that we 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 built uh, we've invested a lot in crisis and emergency um, politically, um, and um, I'm, I I I I think we all need to wonder what that investment has yielded for us. Um, and as we have a confluence of that sort of sense of crisis um, with the uh, the crisis of, uh, of of racialized police violence, right? Um, we get Portland, Oregon, um, which is uh, an example, and it's you know it's not like it's being underreported, but it's pretty striking. This is an example of um, the state uh, asserting emergency powers. Um, can't we can't exclude COVID from what's going on there, right? And the and the and the and the and the justification for the assertion of those powers, right? Um, against uh, our own citizens, um, and there in that case, emergency becomes um, a way to suspend rights um, and privileges um, that are supposedly conferred upon us by by our citizenship, right? And this this happens. In uh, you know the, the classic case of this in many ways is um, is the the pandemic or the epidemic right um, um, this and and I think this is why there's such a deep ambivalence about how we've responded to COVID nineteen right um, we've been taught to be prepared for the worst um, but somehow um, the sense of um, collective responsibility to react. Um, has been sort of spotty, 
right? And where people have, um, and, and this, is, this is my interpretation of things, is that in those places where people have decided as communities that in the absence of some um, guidance from some broader authority that they're going to take that responsibility and, and, and take up mutual aid for themselves, um, that has become, a, that itself has become the emergency. I mean, there's this weird way in which the snake eats its tail, right? Um, when communities stand up for themselves, that becomes a threat, right? Um, and so I, I, I think this is a, a lesson of sort of critical epidemiology, right? Um, I think the lesson there that I take from another uh, anthropologist colleague, Joe Masco, is that we need to think about how we how often we want to deploy the term crisis to talk about the economy, to talk about uh, the planet, um, to talk about um, any number of things that 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 might be, you know, befalling us, right? Um, I think uh, to try to sort of suspend our, our default to crisis can be a really important kind of political act, right? Um, I was just reading a, 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 a colleague's really brilliant essay about, um, is an anthropologist, but also a public health worker being called into uh, the front lines to uh, work in a testing site um, in, the, in the Southern US. And, you know, she, she finds herself, she's a MPH, she finds herself with nurses and doctors from around, you know, her county um, called out into, uh, you know, into the, to the heat to, you know, stand out there and try to talk people through the process of responding. Um, and you know, right as that's happening, um, the 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 protests over the killing of George Floyd and Beyonce Taylor and 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 the many other people who've been murdered by the police start up. Um, and she, uh, who herself is, is a black woman, is talking with these other predominantly black healthcare workers, and they're talking about this sort of sense of crisis, right? This sense of like. Um, but but what was striking about the way that she put it is she didn't use the term crisis; she used the term apocalypse. Um, and 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 I was thinking about it with her, and and actually, apocalypse. If you look at it etymologically, is not an emergency. It's not. Um, it's not the. You know, it's not. It's not a. It's it's a temporal break, but it's actually what it is is a revelation. It's like now we now we're seeing right. Um, and so for a group of people that had always been suspicious of what it meant for say the government to order them to to go to the front lines, right? Um, and whether their bodies might be considered to be sacrificial bodies to this greater cause and how they felt about that, right? Um, again, as predominantly black health workers. Um, the, the sort of confluence of these two events was really for them, was, it was something that was being revealed, right? Rather than, rather than like, oh my God, what's going on? It was like, this is something that we, we felt like was going to be revealed, right? And needed to be revealed. Um, and this is a moment that, in some sense, was foretold, right, um, by the history of, of of our country, right. So, you know, I, I I don't know that I would go around sort of talking about it in that way all the time, but I hadn't really thought about the way that, you know, words, you know, ha where words come from is really interesting. And if we think about this as an apocalypse rather than as a crisis, how might that change the way that we think about where we are right now? Are we learning something? Is something being revealed to us? Um, about who we are um, that is both painful and perhaps destructive, but maybe also
normative? Is it, in fact, within that sense of revelation that we get, uh, that, that we might develop a, a capacity for care, might develop a capacity for mutual aid or something like that? I don't know. Um, just uh, something that I've been thinking about this week. Um, sorry, it's kind of a rambling answer. But. No, 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 that makes a lot of sense to me. I wonder too, if actually thinking about apocalypse as kind of this end times or like a cessation of time, might actually be a technologically advanced way of thinking about our world and designing cities and things like that. Because I was thinking about, you know, with digital technologies have rendered us into kind of an apocalyptic scenario in that time kind of ceases to exist in some ways or, or time, you know, digital time, what actually, like as we're meeting, we're all in different time zones, right? Somewhere it's dark, it's light, right? So we're all kind of co collectively coming together and kind of like a timeless, uh, boundless space. And, and, I, and I feel like, you know, whether it's social media or something like that, right, time just kind of ceases or, or it's a different type of marking time. And do you think like, but, but part of the problem with that, I think this might relate back to emergencies, I don't know what you think, is that a lot of people, some people have suggested that because digital technologies experience this kind of ceaseless cessation of time, is that they use kind of crises or emergency as a, a way to mark time um, and kind of a strange, because if you go on Twitter, right, or so, I don't want to bring it up, but if, if you look at Twitter, it marks itself, which is why I'm not on there, but <laughs> in a constant stream of crises, of a, a like, like boom, 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 right in your face, right? Um, kind of this heightened emotional state of, of kind of calling you to, or it's it's kind of a form of calling you awake or calling you into the into the fray, which is why Twitter becomes such a heated space. So and and I guess part of this too is the notion of public health is obviously using social media. It has to use these digital technologies to reach people. Do you think there's a way that um, public health officials, um, whether here or abroad, could use digital technologies in a way? that rather than kind of feed into this crisis emergency, they could do something more like a, like an apocalyptic or whatever <laughs> kind of notion we're talking about here. Yeah, that, that, that's a really good question. I don't, I don't have a specific answer on that. Although, I mean, I think that the, I, I think that the variation in the way that people use social media is remarkable uh, for public health purposes and other, in, a, in other ways. I mean, I think, um, I, I think there's great potential in the in the way in which social media compresses time uh, to sort of um, to actually change our view of what particular moments in public health mean, both in terms of punctuating their importance, i.e., in the in the in the in the key of emergency or crisis, but also reminding us that maybe not for everyone, but for many people what we what to us looks like an acute event is actually a uh, more or less permanent structural condition right um and i think that was one of the things that was striking about dengue and ciudad sandina right is that there was this need on the part of the state partly because of scarce resources um to sort of mobilize around dengue as a crisis when in fact people lived dengue as an aspect of um of uh, urban marginalization and poverty that wasn't necessarily as acute as people in power were treating it, right? Um, 
And so there's that sort of temporal incongruity that I talk about um, in the book a little bit at play, right? And so I actually think that um, in, in a project that I'm doing now that's in um, another part of Nicaragua with um, uh, people who are uh, current and former workers on uh, sugarcane plantations who have a variety of health problems. I've noticed that the use of social media among those folks is not always just to sort of stir up, I mean, sometimes it is to stir up and mobilize and, you know, take to the streets or do, you know, address this or that acute problem. But it's also to do that sort of longer term work of keeping in touch and keeping apprised of, um, you know, how people are doing on a day-to-day -day basis and kind of creating those sort of um, uh, kind of caring uh, relationships, right? So there is that capacity there um, within those within those platforms. I mean, I kind of think, you know, the crisis there, you know, the, the, the crisis talk or, 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 or you know, the flare-ups of, uh, of anger or whatever it might be that come up on social media, um, uh, you know, those those two are probably, you know, beneficial to social movements, but they're probably also beneficial to the people who, you know, cash checks from uh, the advertising and all the stuff that comes on there. So I think the way in which people can post those media to do other things um, is often not just to raise alarm, but to keep communications going. I mean, how else is it that people are able to get to the streets so quickly if they, had, if they weren't already in touch with each other, right? Checking in on each other, right? You know, making sure that people are okay and taking care of problems that don't rise to the level of crisis right and so um again i think it's that you know it, it, i think i think people who are savvy and i wouldn't either consider myself to be a savvy twitter user user of these other things but people who are seem to be able to manage the the different ways in which those things and to and to, to to use it to learn their history but also to try to shape their futures and make their presence more visible and again that's what you don't need social media for that that's you know that's sort of how people had, um, you know, forged and maintained social relationships for a long time. Um, so it's, I think I think what we're getting sort of circling around to is that any single kind of temporal trajectory that becomes the temporal trajectory is probably is probably dangerous for public health and other things. We need we need a kind of um, a, a multifaceted way of thinking about time. So team, we're nearing the end of the podcast. If the rest of the participants who didn't get the chance to ask a question, but do have thoughts, burgeoning ideas, whatever, uh, we will hopefully very soon uh, allow you to write short 500 word blog pieces as well uh, to participate in, in such ways as well. However, Sierra does have a question. So uh, let's be started with Sierra. Let's end the conversation with Sierra. Sierra, go ahead. Um, so my last question is about the role of anthropomorphisms and um, specifically when one epidemiologist says to the brigadistas that um, mosquitoes are a single mother and that's a way of um, gendering the mosquito and like the mosquito itself it is technically the female mosquito that bites right but that also was a way to communicate the gendered dynamic of the city um, through metaphor I think if I if I read your conclusions on that correctly so I'm just wondering if you could speak a little bit more to that and how I, that struck me I think in 2015 and now as the most powerful um, thing I drew out of this honestly so I just want to know more about 
how this joke works in a way that it's communicating a lot more than what it's saying in its content and form on the surface. Yeah, um, so that thanks. Um, and um, I just want to, I, I actually grew up in Alabama. Um, and so um, uh, it's good to it's know that fine. people are reading the book. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Uh, so yeah, I'm up, up, the, up the road in Birmingham. That's where I grew up. Um, and, and so um, I'm thinking about um, anthropomorphism. I mean, the, 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 the terms are slippery. I mean, I think this gets back to, to, to the question of, about metaphor, really. Um, I, I, I think in the book, um, I, I, I use a quote from uh, Susan Lee Starr, who's actually a, was, a, was a, a scholar of infrastructure, among other things. Um, she, she said something like, it, it matters uh, what metaphors brings, bring worlds together and, and, and keep them, right? Um, and so um, I think um, the capacity that the Brigadistas and others had to sort of tr try to come up with ways to imagine and understand the world of the, of the non-human other um, was just crucially important to how they were able to do their jobs effectively. Um, and I think it was important for not only so that they could communicate to one another and to um, people out there, you know, going in, in their house-to-house -house visits about what this mosquito was, um, but also so that they could try to situate and make sense of um, the job that they were being asked to do um, in a longer history. This gets back to, to temporality, right? Um, wh why, why does this work fall to women? Um, how is this, you know, what does it mean that this work is gendered um, um, in, in, in really interesting ways through imagining that by imagining what this, um, all this might mean for the mosquito herself, um, seem to be an effective thing to do, right? I don't think it's necessarily just anthropomorphism. I mean, I think anthropomorphism can be um, somewhat, just, we're just sort of um, projecting human characteristics onto animals. If that's all it is, right? Um, then we're really kind of um, um, trying to make sense of those things just in terms of ourselves. I think there's actually something more complicated going on here, which is that the, Brigadistas are trying to make sense of themselves by thinking about the mosquito too, right? Um, so that there's that, you know, there's that two way. So, you know, anthropomorphism, if it were just anthropomorphism, right? Um, and you certainly see a lot of this in public health approaches to dengue. It's like, let's, let's either humanize this mosquito to make it less scary, um, or let's give these mosquitoes characteristics of a kind of Disney-esque humanized kind of villain um, so that people will take it seriously, right? These, these are sorts of things get, that go on, right? Um, whereas this is much more in the vein of what um, I think uh, scientists and animal investigators try to do, which is uh, really try to find ways to understand what's going on in that non-human world um, to, um, to get back to figuring out who we are, right? Um, and so I think that Thinking about those, um, the way that those metaphors work in two, as two-way streets, I think is really important, right? Um, I mean, and 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 I think also that um, understanding the relationship between people and the creatures in the world that we don't necessarily need, you know, we don't we don't have positive or 
affectively charged relationship with um, is is incredibly difficult. Um, um, and I think that's something that, you know, there, there's lessons there for the people that have to do it on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, I, I, I read not too long ago another really interesting piece about um, social workers in uh, the urban U.S. were sort of trying to think about how to deal with bedbugs, right? Um, and, 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 and sort of facing the reality that the bedbug is not an enemy that you can ever completely defeat. <laughs> So you have to kind of live, this is, this is uh, uh, Summerson Carr, who's a, a, a social work anthropologist uh, person. But she writes about how that, you know, that bed bug, you know, the, the battle against the bed bug for, from the perspective of a social worker is actually a way of understanding the ethic of social work itself, right? Um, the pragmatism that goes into the social work itself. It's sort of like the difference between thinking that you're going to cure uh, a person of their, of their addiction through a particular kind of in intervention, rather than keep coming back and staying engaged with that person, right? Um, and, and I think in a way the bed bug keeps, you know, because it doesn't go away, keeps people engaged um, uh, with one another. And so the, the social worker has to sort of remind themselves of the sort of the basic part of their training, which is that um, our job is to try to help the situation move in, incrementally, pragmatically in the direction that we think we want it to move, rather than search for some kind of finality, right? Um, and so I think that's always been the kind of big, you know, rift between the kind of clinical approach to health and the public health approach to health, right? Because public health, uh, people who come from a kind of a public health perspective tend to have a, a more pragmatic needle moving sense of things rather than the sense that we're gonna cure and end this. And in politics, that becomes very difficult, right? The idea that we're gonna manage something or control something rather than eradicate something um, um, is, is a very difficult thing to, to sell politically. Um, and so um, if we think about this parts of the world with which we will probably continue to be entangled and how we might live with those parts of the world, um, that might be one good sort of avenue for, for, for cultivating that, that, that sensibility. So does that sound, it seems like we've had really lively uh, discussion. Uh, I didn't want to go over more than an hour. It seems like maybe we should wrap it up. Does that sound good? Yeah, thank you, Alex, for joining us. Thank you so much. And thank you all to everyone, all these great scholars who joined us, um, giving your feedback. Again, we hope to have a blog post up and going pr pretty soon. So you can then engage in the conversation via blog if you have a follow-up. Um, so join us two weeks from now. Uh, for our next episode, episode three, where we will be discussing border medicine by Brett Hendrickson. Thank you. Salute. Great. All right. Well, thanks. For more information about how you can get involved and make change in your community today, please visit the Contagion Religion and Cities webpage at religionandcities.org slash contagion dash podcast.